Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. Very excited for today's guest and our discussion. I'll be joined in just a moment by City Council Member Crystal Hudson, a Democrat representing the 35th District in Brooklyn, which includes the neighborhoods of Prospect Heights, Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, and parts of Crown Heights and Bedford-Stuyvesant. Crystal Hudson was elected to the City Council in 2021, so it was just a little over 100 days into her tenure in the Council, and made history in that election as one of the first out gay Black women ever elected in New York City. She's also chair of the City Council's Aging Committee, a position she sought after personal experience as the caregiver for her mother and she'll tell us about that in just a moment. And in this conversation with Councilmember Hudson, we want to talk about specifically her work chairing the aging committee and what she's trying to do both legislatively and in the, this initial city budget process to be a proponent for older New Yorkers, aging New Yorkers, and seniors in New York City. And then we have other things to get into with Councilmember Hudson about her district, other citywide priorities, dynamics in the council, and a few other things. We'll see what we can get to in our time together here. First, before we bring on Councilmember Hudson, if you missed any of our recent reporting at GothamGazette.com, do find it there. We've been covering, of course, as usual, city and state politics and government, a lot dissecting the outcomes of the new state budget that we're still sifting through and examining uh, and figuring out what comes next. We're also now starting to really look ahead to the state level and U.S. House primaries happening in June. We're just two months from primary day, basically. So that's fast approaching. Now that we got out of the state budget being done, uh, things are turning pretty quickly to the electoral landscape at the state level and, and for the U.S. House, of course, on the federal level. And then in city, it's city budget season. We're going to get into that with Councilmember Hudson. The now that the state budget is finalized, there's a lot more that the city can chew on in terms of what's coming through the state. But then there's also, of course, other things that have been debated uh, as the city budget season rolls on. This is Mayor Eric Adams' first budget as mayor, of course. We are speaking here on Monday, April 25th, so that all listeners know by the time you hear this, Mayor Adams might have released his executive budget, which he's set to release on Tuesday, April 26th. So the conversation with Councilmember Hudson is just before we see that budget from Mayor Adams, but the city council has been putting forward many of their priorities. Uh, many council members, including Speaker Adrian Adams and Councilmember Hudson, held a press conference at City Hall on the day we're recording this interview to talk about more of the council's priorities for the budget and push the mayor additionally as he's set to release his executive budget. And then things get further into more city council hearings in May, more negotiations, and a city budget due by the July 1st start of the new fiscal year. All right. And lastly here, if you've missed any of our other episodes of Max Politics here on the podcast, please do find those wherever you get your podcasts, or we have them all posted at the Gotham Gazette website. I've had some great conversations in recent weeks and months with a whole bunch of state elected officials, city elected officials, advocates, experts, and others. Uh, I won't go through the whole list, but just in the last couple of weeks, I had Uh, On at the same time, Brooklyn State Senators Julia Salazar and Jabari Brisport to talk about their reflections on the new state budget, why they voted no on several budget bills, uh, their top priorities for the upcoming legislative session and more. Also, we've had a big Brooklyn run recently, uh, but but for various reasons, including Councilmember Hudson here today. But also recently, I spoke with, again, uh, joined by two guests, 
the new co-chairs of the city council's progressive caucus. Uh, that's council member Shahana Hanif and Lincoln Ressler, both of them also from Brooklyn, coincidentally, uh, and many others. But we haven't left out other boroughs. I, I was also recently joined by Queen State Senator John Liu uh, and others from different boroughs, Gustavo Rivera, the senator from the Bronx, and more. And uh, also this week on the podcast, I'll be joined by Bronx City Council member Pierina Sanchez. So we're, we're spreading uh, the guests out around the city, but we've had a lot of Brooklyn guests recently. All right. So find those at Max Politics, wherever you get your podcasts or the Gotham Gazette site. All right. City Council member Crystal Hudson, a Democrat representing the 35th district in Brooklyn and the chair of the aging committee. Thank you very much for being with me. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm really happy to be here with you. And I just want you and your listeners to know you can never have too much Brooklyn. <laughs> never have too much. I mean, Brooklyn is quite clearly the center of the political universe these days with, you know, all three citywide elected officials from Brooklyn, the state attorney general, uh, the U.S. Senate uh, majority leader, Chuck Schumer. I mean, we could go on and on. So plenty of Brooklyn's plenty where it's of, at. That's all I, yes. that's all I can say. Um, <laughs> All right. So let's let's jump in to start with your work chairing the aging committee in the council. These are issues that I know because we've you know, we've covered them at times at Gotham Gazette. Our colleagues at at places like City Limits have, have covered them very well. But it's really hard to get people to pay a lot of attention to issues related to aging, to senior citizens, to the the challenges of an aging population, to what you know older New Yorkers really care about and need. There's great advocates doing work on this uh, at Live on New York and AARP and, and other groups. Um, but talk about taking on the challenge of chairing this committee and what you're hoping to do at sort of the the high level, we'll get into a lot of the specifics, but in terms of sort of leadership of the committee and taking on this responsibility, what's your outlook? Yeah, I mean, I think for starters, um, you know, what what you what you mentioned is so sort of spot on. Um, we uh, culturally, I would say, and, and as a society, we don't really value our older adults the way so many other cultures and countries do across the globe. Um, you know, we sort of expect people to, uh, you know, have their families work, retire, and then we forget about them. Um, and if we're lucky, we will, you know, grow older and um, live to become an older adult um, and hopefully, you know, do so here in New York City. And so some of my priorities are ensuring that we're creating communities that are responsive to older adults um, ensuring that older adults can age in place safely and with dignity and don't have to be institutionalized, that we're supporting both paid and unpaid caregivers who so often support older adults, um, and also to ending the mistreatment of older adults. And that includes everything from elder abuse to age discrimination and even real estate predatory practices. You know, we shouldn't be evicting older adults. Uh, we shouldn't be evicting anyone. Um, but we certainly shouldn't be evicting those of us who are most vulnerable um, and also bringing older adults into the 21st century. I mean, so many have been forced into learning new uh, new things in terms of technology just in order to stay com- connected to their family and friends and, you know, even neighbors throughout this pandemic. And so ensuring that you know, older adults actually have the resources they need in order to continue to stay connected 
um, and so that they're not, you know, socially isolated from loved ones. Mm. We'll get into some of the, the potential solutions there. You are um, uh, the only child of a single mother. You became a primary caregiver for your mother when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, speak a little bit about how that informs your work as a legislator, as an elected official, uh, as chair of this committee. Um, you, you've spoken on the campaign trail last year and into office about understanding things firsthand about how um, older New Yorkers and if they're lucky, their you know their caretakers um, have to have to navigate so much uh, bureaucracy and so forth. How has that experience influenced your um, you know your work as an elected official here? My experience as a caregiver for my mom for eight years while she lived with Alzheimer's disease is the only reason why I'm in public service actually. I worked in the sports marketing for over 10 years. I had a, a career in a completely different um, field, different industry. And it was through my caregiving experience for my mother, um, you know, that I realized how incredibly difficult it was for regular families like ours. As you mentioned, I was the, the only child of a single parent. And so, you know, it was just me and my mom. And when she needed care and needed help, um, I was the only person to, to really come to her aid. I ended up moving in with my mom and making sure that she had, you know, all of the care that she really needed and deserved. She had also been a nurse in New York City for over 40 years, uh, over 30 of those years spent at Harlem Hospital. So she had spent, you know, her majority of her life, but certainly her whole career um, caring for others. And it really just felt like when it came time for her to receive care herself, there was none. Everything was incredibly difficult. It's hard to navigate these systems. Um, it's hard to figure out what you qualify for, what you don't qualify for. Mm. And I thought, you know, going through that process, I'm a younger person. You know, my mother had me later in life. So she happened to have a, you know, a child who was um, younger than most of her peers' children. Um, but I was a younger person who, you know, had the time and the resources to sit on the phone, you know, uh, call around to different agencies and nonprofit organizations and, and figure things out. I had time to surf the web. Um, we speak English as our first language, you know, and I thought, what about all the families who don't have somebody younger in their household with them, who don't have somebody to advocate for them, who might be alone, um, you know, who don't speak English as a first language and who just don't have the, the time and the resources to spend navigating these really bureaucratic and, and challenging systems. And so that's what got me into public service. I felt like, you know, if I worked in local government, then um, I would be able to have a direct impact on my neighbors and my community and on other families who look like my own um, and to try to help them to navigate um, some of these systems by making government more accessible to more people. And so that's, you know, what I've set out to do. Um, ultimately, you know, I, I accepted the call from a lot of um, constituents and neighbors uh, who encouraged me to run for office. And, um, you know, I did so because I knew how deeply committed I am to my community and to my people and, and to Brooklyn and New York City as a whole. Um, and I ultimately felt like, you know, I don't know that there's going to be somebody else that's as deeply committed as I am. And so, you know, they say you have to ask a woman 
10 times to run for office before she says yes. Um, and so it, it may have been a few more than 10 times, but mm-hmm. eventually I said yes. And so here I am. Yeah. Um, in your experience, uh, there may be many, uh, but but is there one or two, especially when you're working in city government, is there one or two examples you'd point to where you'd say the system is just broken for helping get services for older New Yorkers or, or help, helping them access opportunities or, or whatever, whatever it might be, or, or even them being, you know, when, when people are obviously older, many are, are able-bodied for a very long time in their older years, mm-hmm. um, but, but being able to sort of access things. Are there, are there a couple of specific things you point people to that are just deeply broken that you're looking to take on here? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one I would say is that we wait for and expect people to come to us rather than going to them. Um, You know, when you think about, again, those of us who are most vulnerable, uh, those who may have mobility impairments, who may be disabled, uh, those who may not speak English as their first language, to have to figure out that there's a department for the aging, then to have to figure out how to contact that agency, then to you know, actually make the calls to make sure you're receiving um, information in your home language, in your native language, in um, culturally relevant and responsive, you know, ways. Um, That's, we're asking a lot of people, you know, and so we should be doing everything we can as a government to reach people directly, to knock on their doors, to send them mail, to to call them on the phone um, and to let them know, you know, we've seen, we should be tracking people, right? Once you turn 65, um, you should be receiving information from the Department for the Aging saying, here are all the programs that you're eligible for. And not only are you eligible for them, we've already automatically enrolled you into all of the programs you're eligible for. And if there's anything, you know, that you might not want to be participating in for a number of reasons, um, then let us know and we can opt you out. But everything should be um, you should have to opt out of programs. Even the um, senior citizen rent freeze program, SCREE, um, as one example, you know, there's no, there's currently, you're not auto enrolled into that program. And everybody over a certain age and under a certain income um, qualify, is qualified for that program. But you have to know about the program. You have to then, you know, apply for the program. And it just shouldn't be that difficult. Um, and so that's just that's just one example of, you know, we should just be making it incredibly easier, um, you know, for folks to actually get access to the services that they need and that they're qualified for. Mm-hmm. The city council put out its response uh, to the mayor's preliminary budget. Uh, as I said in our introduction here, we're speaking right before the mayor releases his executive budget, with his, which is his mm-hmm. updated plan, uh, which is supposed to, uh, in theory, take into account the council's feedback. And he's already made a couple of announcements indicating that he has heard some of that feedback. Um, but the council released a, a preliminary budget response calling for more, uh, an additional billion dollars plus in, in spending uh, that the council believes is there due to, to tax revenue, not even really chipping away what the mayor wants to put away in savings. Um, so, you know, very likely, here the the picture is looking fairly good in terms of federal funding that still exists higher than expected tax revenues um you have some priorities within that response uh that that are particularly related to the department for the aging and other um issues related to to aging new yorkers what are a couple of things that you're really pushing for to see 
taken from this negotiation stage and, and being sure are in the adopted budget that's due by July 1st? What are a couple of those budget priorities for you as, as aging chair? Well, for starters, and just to put things in context for everyone, from, from just a, a purely um, statistical perspective, we have more older adults in New York City than we do children in our public school system. Um, we have 1.73 older adults in New York City, and we have or we dedicate less than one half of 1% of our almost $100 billion budget to older adults. So, you know, the numbers don't lie. We do not value older adults um, here in New York City. Um, one of the priorities is the home delivered meals um, expansion and uh, weekend and holiday meals for older adults. We've included that in our budget response. We're calling for the city to provide $9.7 million in support of the continued growth in demand for that home delivered meal program and $3 million to support uh, weekend and holiday home delivered meals uh, not provided by current contracts. So that's a total of $12.7 million. And then um, a seamless transition for older adults using the Get Food Recovery Meals Program. That was a program that was uh, funded and essentially created, uh, funded by the federal government and created during the pandemic. Um, but that program serves roughly 10,000 older adults. It expires on June 30th of this year. There's currently no plan starting July 1 in the next fiscal year of 2023 um, to, to accommodate those 10,000 older adults that have been receiving meals from the Get Food Recovery Meals Program. And so, you know, we're asking the administration to add $30 million in funding to ensure that every older adult who needs a meal next year has one, you know, without, uh, without question. We know that food insecurity was an issue before the pandemic. It was exacerbated by the pandemic. At the start of the pandemic, I created the Greater Prospect Heights Mutual Aid Organization, you know, which was really out of a, 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 a genuine concern for my neighbors, um, you know, not knowing what the pandemic um, would, would entail and what it would mean for so many of us. And the majority of the people we served in the last two years, people that we provided groceries to every single week were older adults and they were uh, primarily undocumented um, immigrants from the Caribbean. Um, and, you know, so we know that food insecurity is an issue, particularly for, for older adults. And we have a, a program, a meal delivery program that's been working for the last couple of years throughout this pandemic. And we make, need to make sure we're doing everything we can to ensure that that program continues and so that people uh, do not go hungry. Mm, interesting. Um, you also uh, have some priorities around technology for older New Yorkers, mental health services for, for older New Yorkers. And, and it'll be interesting, you know, again, it's, you know, it's remarkable. Sometimes we're talking about a budget that will be roughly a hundred billion dollars. And we're talking about, and obviously this spreads across the city. So every $10 million, I mean, it all adds up, but we are talking about relatively small amounts of money mm -hmm, that would help continue some of these programs. And, and it will be, um, important and interesting to see where uh, where some of this uh, lands. Um, 
Anything in terms of legislation that you're looking at uh, as as chair of the aging committee? Are there are there bills that you will be introducing or that you're exploring that um, you know would would impact this work? Um, you know, looking to advocate and and uh, empower older New Yorkers. Yeah. So you know, I mentioned um, Scree and and then it's uh, its sister program DRE, which is for disabled New Yorkers. Um, you know, so we're looking at um, introducing legislation that would auto enroll folks who are eligible for those programs, um, because, again, folks shouldn't have to, you know, learn about the program, figure out then how to apply for the program if we know that, you know, certain people are, are eligible already. So those folks should be auto enrolled into those types of programs. So that's that's one piece of legislation, mm-hmm. um, you know. We're also looking into ways to make everything easier um, for older adults. So whether it's, um, you know, housing, the type of housing that that folks have access to, and not just talking about, you know, affordable housing um, and accessible housing, but but actually making, you know, the housing that people are in um, accessible for older adults. So we're looking at legislation that would mandate, you know, about 10% of units in new buildings um, have what's called a universal design, which would mean that, you know, there are grab bars uh, that everywhere is, um, that the whole unit is ADA accessible, you know, so wider hallways, um, accessibility into into restrooms, doorways, things like that. If we're creating spaces um, that accommodate older adults and the needs of older adults and, and also those with disabilities, then, you know, then, then we don't have to think about as an afterthought, um, you know, how to retrofit places for those folks. If we already come in saying, all right, 10% of these units will be, uh, will be accessible for older adults. So those are some of the things um, that we've got, you know, uh, on the docket and that, and that we're looking into. Interesting. Can the Department uh, for the Aging, the city's Department for the Aging, do more, um, you know, in terms of, uh, senior centers, uh, uh, places for, you know, especially now that, that hopefully, you know, people are feeling a bit safer, um, related to COVID with, um, you know, hopefully most older New Yorkers are getting those, those first and second boosters. Although there are some troubling numbers in terms of the oldest New Yorkers not Mm -hmm. having high rates. Um, but in terms of sort of a return to in-person services, um, and sort of the thinking about, where the city's, um, you know, senior centers and, and department for the aging could sort of go um, in this opportunity that we all have, you know, coming out of the the pandemic um, to whatever degree we're coming out of it. Um, and also with the new government, you know, a new mayor, new city council, any thoughts on on sort of the future of uh, DIFTA and, and, you know, in-person services for older New Yorkers? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I've been fighting so hard for uh, the recovery meals program to be maintained in the next fiscal year and beyond um, is because older adult centers are opening now at a hundred percent capacity. There's actually no vaccine mandate, right? So they've lifted the vaccine mandate, which means that a lot of folks who are immunocompromised or who might just be fearful of getting COVID are not going to be coming back into the older adult centers. Um, 
They're going to be mm-hmm. staying at home and they're still going to need access to the foods that they may have otherwise received in the congregate environment of the older adult centers, um, you know, the group lunches and meals and, and so forth. Um, and so it's great, you know, on the one hand that we are that we're reopening the older adult centers um, at full capacity. But uh, but on the other hand, we need to take into account um, and and really, you know, help to prioritize the folks who aren't going to be able to make it out to those older adult centers or who won't feel comfortable in those older adult centers. You know, we've also seen, um, you know, some crime when it comes to um, or hate crimes specifically when it comes to our Asian American communities. Uh, And a lot of those folks have been, a lot of the victims of those crimes have been older adults. And so, you know, this goes back to to our funding, right? And, And making sure that the organizations that provide culturally relevant programming and services to these older New Yorkers um, are fully funding funded um, and can continue to provide those services and to, and can make sure that you know our communities, all of our communities, are supported with culturally relevant um, you know programming and resources. We need to make sure that uh, when we think about older adults, we're also thinking about you know those those of our um, immigrant populations who, again, may not speak English as their first language, um, but want to be in some of these older adult centers and environments to engage with their their peers. And then lastly, you know, I have a great uh, older adult center and housing project in my district called Stonewall House, which is a uh, majority, I would say, um, LGBTQ um, housing facility for seniors. And the senior center um, at the bottom of the facility is operated by an organization called SAGE, um, which which is an advocacy organization for older LGBTQ adults. And we should have more SAGE centers, um, you know, across the city, not just those that, that specialize in providing services and resources for LGBTQ older adults, but really just for, for all older adults. I mean, the stage, uh, excuse me, the Stonewall House that's run and operated by Sage is really, it's a state of the art older adult center. Um, you know, it, it, they have classes every day, all day. Um, you know, I've been there several times. I've talked to the, the members there who are both LGBTQ identified and, and not. Um, and they enjoy all the services and the programs that are there, including computer classes, how to get on Zoom, dance classes, um, you know, all sorts of different activities. And the space is beautiful. It's modern. It's easy to walk around. It's light. Um, and every single older adult center should look like um, the Sage Center that we have in my district. And so I look forward to we'll actually be um, going around the city visiting um, older adult centers in every district, in every borough. We've got a number of them already planned. Um, I think our, our our first couple of visits are on Wednesday um, this week up in Harlem. Um, and really, it's an opportunity, you know, for my colleagues to to share with me their, you know, the equivalent of their stage um, centers or their Stonewall houses. Uh, let me know what should be replicated. Um, and what's state of the art, and then also for us to to identify the older adult centers that maybe need a little bit more um, tender love and care. 
Great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to come back to housing in a minute, but first, um, the the street safety, uh, traffic safety is such uh, an important issue for the whole city, obviously, but also for older New Yorkers who um, sometimes need a little more time to cross the street, uh, you know, a number of issues. Um, is there anything on your agenda related to, um, you know, ensuring better street and, and traffic safety for older New Yorkers? Are you, um, you know, are you a proponent of some of the, um, you know, some of the policies that advocates have been calling for and many city council members and, and the mayor has been moving towards in terms of street redesigns and more uh, pedestrian space and so forth? Uh, any, any thoughts on, on those um, avenues? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big advocate for for safe streets um, as a whole, and thinking about you know when when we actually prioritize uh, the most marginalized among us, and everybody else benefits, right? So when we're actually designing our streets um, to benefit those who may uh, have mobility impairments, those who may be pushing strollers, um, those who may just take a little bit longer to cross the street, those who may have um, who may be blind or or have you know, limited vision. Um, when we design our streets for those folks, then everybody benefits. And so, um, I've always been a, a street safety advocate, um, ensuring that you know we're we're doing just that. That we're actually prioritizing our streets for um, pedestrians and cyclists who might have um, you know some mo- some mobility impairments. Um, thinking about street redesign. Thinking about you know adding more green space. Um, shortening the the crosswalk times by widening medians on on bigger corridors uh, like you know Atlantic Avenue in my district that's a it's a very dangerous corridor um, and I've done a lot of advocacy around making sure that um, Atlantic Avenue in particular um, is much safer than it is today. Mm. Uh- there's a discussion. Let's let's stick with Atlantic Avenue for a minute. There, there's some discussion around some some rezoning um, of a portion around Atlantic Avenue. What's the status to that, and what are you what are you trying to see in terms of the future of Atlantic and and what it you know is zoned for and looks like? What the community has asked for on Atlantic Avenue specifically is a comprehensive plan. Uh, this is an area that actually has been um, asking for rezoning. You don't get too many, uh, <laughs> you know, too many yeah. communities across New York that actually say to city planning, hey, come here. We want to be rezoned. And here's here's a blueprint for how to do it. So um, it, it, we have, in, my, in my assessment, there actually should be many, many more that do that, you know, especially, there should be. Uh, you know, especially there. And again, this is the rezonings are very often caught up in just, you know, discussions about how much housing, which is very important. But, um, you know, there's ways for for communities to, to get together and really push for a holistic sort of rethinking of, of certain parts of their their neighborhoods. But anyway, well, the, well, listen, we can yeah. go on uh, on this particular point forever. Yeah. But the, the problem here in New York is that we don't actually plan comprehensively. Right. We mm. plan uh, lot by lot or block by block. We don't even plan borough by borough. You know, we, we don't say like this is what we would like to see in Brooklyn or in the Bronx or in Queens. Um, we, we have let private developers for a very, very long time 
um, determine how New York is built and how we grow um, as a built environment. And I do think it's time that um, our communities and, and New Yorkers themselves have a say in the future of New York and, and what it looks like. Um, and so on Atlantic Avenue in my district, you know, what the community has asked for is, is just that, a comprehensive plan. What we've said is we know what we need um, and this is what we would like to see. And city planning for a long time has denied us the opportunity to actually bring that plan to fruition. And so um, we had uh, two projects um, that came in recently they started under the the previous council members tenure um and they were under you know i we had to vote on them i think we're voting on them on thursday actually and what we were able to do is incorporate those two buildings into you know uh the the future potential um rezoning and uh comprehensive planning for the corridor and we were able to get an unprecedented number of affordable units um from any private developers um, ever in New York City. So we were able to secure 35% affordable housing, uh, deeply affordable housing at an average of about 54% uh, AMI or area median income. Um, and what, what we've done through those negotiations is essentially created a new floor for uh, mandatory inclusionary housing. What we've done is we've said, you know, 20% at an average of 80% or 100% area median income has not been working for so many of us. Uh, and so now we have 35% at an average of 54% area median income, which ranges um, from families of two making uh, $38,000 to $76,000. So, you know, you could be a city employee, um, you know, two, two bus drivers, um, you know, or you could be fast food workers making minimum wage um, and you would be able to afford a unit um, in one of these new two new two buildings. And so what we're saying is, you know, this is this should be the new floor. This should be the new standard. If you have private developers coming into your community, they should be willing to to build at least a minimum of 35 percent affordable housing at an average of 54 percent area median income or or even lower. Um, and like mm -hmm. I said, this is just the new floor. We can go much further than this. Um, but I'm proud of the fact that that, you know, we've been able to to create a new standard for what uh, mandatory inclusionary housing could look like, because we know we've known for so long that MIH, as it's as it currently stands and as it's written, doesn't work. Is, is this something that you have any, I mean, the, you know, this mandatory inclusionary housing comes up a lot in discussions around affordable housing in the city. This is obviously a, a landmark change to the city's zoning um, rule, you know, zoning text and rules that, that that was ushered in under Mayor de Blasio. And in essence was, was really, you know, mostly created to be used actually in sort of wealthier areas um, to, to ensure that affordable, like at least some solid percentage of affordable housing was built in new development, especially in wealthier areas and wasn't really right. supposed to be the solution for areas that are that are not the wealthier areas in the city. Is it do you have any sense and it might be too early in this council, but do you have any sense if there is an appetite for revisiting the mandatory inclusionary housing um, rules and, and the mandates and the choices therein in this council? Because there was a lot of discussion of that in the 
elections last year, but I'm not sure anybody really wants to reopen the zoning laws. Oh, I think there's definitely an appetite mm-hmm. without a doubt. And I know you're, you're also going to have uh, council member Sanchez mm-hmm. on who's chair of housing and buildings. Um, so I'll let her speak in, a, in more detail to that, but uh, there's definitely an appetite. I think if there's, if there's a, a, any council that is, you know, willing to sort of, uh, blow up the status quo and, and sort of, you know, shake things up. It's certainly this council. Um, so, yeah, that's that. Well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting statement. We'll see. We'll see how that, uh, how that plays <laughs> out. Um, when you say that uh, beyond something like mandatory inclusionary housing, um, is there anything top of mind for you when you, when you're thinking of how the count, this council really sees itself and, and wants to be bold and, and transformational? Is there, is there anything else top of mind that you think this council will really take on in, a, in an aggressive way that sort of rethinks how the city does business? Well, I think our budget response is a great example. You know, we've seen under the leadership of our speaker, Adrian Adams, um, a budget that, is prioritizing people, um, a budget that knows that safe communities have access to quality education, youth programs, um, access to you know quality healthcare, culturally relevant healthcare, access to affordable housing, a truly and deeply affordable housing for the people with the greatest needs, uh, safe communities also have access to good jobs with with living wages um, and opportunities for people to have uh, union jobs um, and investments in our older adults. Those are what create safe communities. And so I think, um, again, our budget response uh, and the things that we're asking for really prioritize investments in the programs and the services and the resources that people need um, in order to keep our community safe and also prioritizing our most vulnerable New Yorkers. And so I think that's already been a really big, bold step by this council, um, again, with the with the leadership of Speaker Adrian Adams. We're speaking here with City Council Member Crystal Hudson, a Democrat representing the 35th City Council District in Brooklyn, including the neighborhoods of Prospect Heights, Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, parts of Crown Heights and Bedford-Stuyvesant. Um, we're just uh, going to speak for a few more minutes. I want to try to get to a couple more things here with you. Um, let's come back to housing. You have, um, I mean, you have one of the most interesting, so many of the city council districts, if not all are very interesting, but you have, you have such an interesting district in terms of the you different You can call it the best, the best. District, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know about the best. <laughs> interesting it's, it's, is, an, is a euphemism. For it's, the best well, district. no, it's fascinating. I, I'll say, fa- <laughs> you know, it's fascinating to someone, a journalist, you know, looking at different policy dynamics, different uh, demographic changes in the city. There, there, there's so much going on on in your district and, and that has been going on. Um, housing is is at the center of so much of that. And you obviously have these, you know, very different um, sort of socioeconomic uh, conditions in different parts of your, your district, different needs, different uh, priorities, but also affordable housing is, is just such a challenge in so many parts of your district. How are you thinking about um 
those needs and challenges here as so much often comes back to individual city council member decisions on land use changes. You spoke earlier in this conversation, obviously, about wanting to do planning differently, but you know, short of short of that happening, you know, any any significant changes on that are a little ways away, if if ever. You know, the city council adopting a comprehensive planning bill seems seems unlikely. Could happen. You know, it was obviously debated quite a bit in the last council. Um, mm-hmm. I hope. I hope the I hope the various borough presidents were listening about how you know we don't even do planning that well on a borough level. Maybe the borough presidents can can kick that into a different gear, working with the Department of City Planning. But um, so much of this, as you obviously know and have already been seeing as a council member and saw working in the council previously, is about individual city council members advocating and pushing the envelope, as you talked about on Atlantic Avenue, having to make decisions about certain land use applications where the full city council usually defers in in what's called member deference to the individual council member. How are you thinking about the needs of of affordable housing in your district and how to get more of it um, beyond what you said earlier and how to approach development in your district? Well, a couple of things. First, you know, I'd like to say I've got love for uh, all of the borough presidents, but really uh, Antonio Reynoso, I think is going to be um, unprecedented when it comes to uh, thinking about things like comprehensive planning, um, you know, borough wide. And uh, I look, I, I look forward to working closely with him. He's got some really, really great ideas that I won't you know, uh, spoil for him. I'll let him come on and, and share his <laughs> thoughts will, himself. Yes, I, will, but... I will talk with him. No, he, he yeah, I should say, but... right. He was one of, he's been one of the big proponents of comprehensive planning and, you know, like when he was in he has council been. and yeah. So I, I, I'm really looking forward to there's working hope closely there. with him. Mm-hmm. There is, there's, there's lots of, of good hope. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I have faith in him and, you know, we've already had so many conversations, um, around some of his ideas, some of my ideas. He's been really supportive of some of the things that I want to do. Um, so there's more to come there for sure. Um, you know, and, and just in terms of how I think about housing, let me say this. 20% of the Black population in my district uh, has has left the district just in the last 10 years. So we're not talking about in a generation. We're talking about in just one decade, we've lost 20% of our black population. Um, and that's second to uh, the, the 36th council district next to me, council member Chio Se's district, second only to his district. And so we have um, the largest declines in our black populations, him being number one, me being number two, uh, citywide in the last 10 years. And so when you, when you realize that and you understand that, um, not only do you want to ensure that you're doing everything to prevent, you know, further um, displacement, um, but it's it is thinking about, you know, how exactly do we do that? And, you know, securing 35 percent of uh, deeply affordable housing is is just one way um, to do that, to ensure that, you know, the black residents in this particular area. So talking again about that Atlantic Avenue corridor Black residents in that area um, make uh, a median household income of 40, have a median household income of forty thousand dollars compared to white families that have a median household income of one hundred and eighteen thousand um, dollars. And so, you know, when when I think about 
housing and uh, what we're going to build and who we're building for, we have to be building for the black families that make $40,000 a year. Um, we have to be building for the black families who have been here for generations and can no longer afford to be here, um, who are being impacted by predatory landlords um, and house, housing practices, you know, that are being impacted by um, evictions um, and can't get relief, right? And also thinking about the undocumented immigrants um, who we've also been fighting for so fiercely at the state level um, to ensure, you know, relief. And so, you know, that's when we talk about housing, that's who we need to be planning for. We need to be planning for those who have the greatest needs. Um, and so, you know, comprehensive planning can allow us to do that where we know exactly, you know, where the needs are, who we need to be building for and what we need to be building. Um, and then also we need to be thinking about, you know, sustainability, um, making sure that we're building, you know, for, for our future. It's not enough to just throw a building up, um, you know, and hope it lasts, you know, for a generation. We have to really think about how we're building um, the materials we're using um, and, you know, getting to um, a place where we're, you know, eventually 100%, you know, electric, um, solar powered, you know, all of those things. So that's the type of housing and, and environment, those environmental justice issues are black issues too, you know? So, um, that's yeah, how point, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah no, I'll, I'll point people to, we're not going to have a chance to dig too much more into it, but, um, you released a black agenda for, for New I York did. city. You actually, uh, launched it in part with an op-ed at Gotham Gazette that we were happy to published last year. So I'll point people to, to look further at that because what a couple of, uh, well, several of the things we've already discussed are, are in, you know, intertwined there. Um, Absolutely. And, and what you just said is especially reminded me of that. Um, one more on housing, you know, it, it strikes me certainly that I don't think, you know, I don't think there's a lot of discussion out there. You know, there's so much debate about housing policy, but I don't think there's much you know, discussion out there where uh, virtually anybody would disagree with with much of what you just said. I think one of the things that seems to almost be splitting progressives at this point even is the question about sort of how aggressive New York City needs to be in just building a lot more housing of all types, of, of all varieties, because part of the pressures that you just got at and part of the displacement that you just got at is because the city has simply not built anywhere near enough housing of all kinds over the last uh, decade plus, two decades at least, um, to to accommodate the demand. And that um, obviously it all can't be luxury housing. It all, you know, it can't all be for upper income earners, but that, you know, a big part of the pressures on the people who you were just saying, the black New Yorkers who've left your district, left the neighboring district, um, because of those financial pressures that whether it's in your district or elsewhere, the city needs a lot more housing. How are you thinking about that question? Where, where do you sort of come down on that? Um, and, and does, you know, does, does, does it need to be um, in your district or are you saying, you know, at this point, um, you know, we need to, we need to look to, to other districts more than, than my district. 
Um, it's a little bit of, 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 of all of that, you know, which I know doesn't, doesn't make for necessarily a, a particularly easy answer, but, um, you know, we need to build more housing. And I think that's an undisputed fact. Um, but it's how we build the housing. It's about the process. It's about building in a responsible way that's actually delivering for the people with the greatest needs. We can't continue to build only or exclusively, you know, luxury developments. We can't continue to call units that charge, you know, $3,000 for a studio or one bedroom apartment affordable housing. It's not affordable. Um, you know, we can't, we can't continue to accommodate, um, you know, tax breaks for folks who are not actually, um, you know, building for the people with the greatest needs. We also need to provide subsidies for those who actually want to build um, affordable housing, deeply affordable housing for people who are mission driven. Um, you know, there are plenty of nonprofit organizations and even um, in some cases, houses of worship who want to leverage maybe underutilized or, or, or unutilized space and land that they may have. Um, but we've got to make sure that those places are 100% affordable housing. Um, if it's a private developer, uh, we, we, we should really be striving for 50% affordable housing um, at a bare minimum, um, you, you know, in, in order to accommodate the needs of the people um, that we know are experiencing homelessness. You know, we have, I think it's 100,000 students in our school system. Um, uh, the New York Times put out a piece, I think maybe the year before last, about those students um, in our school system who are experiencing homelessness. You know, we shouldn't have any kids in our school system who are experiencing homelessness. New York City should not be one of the leading cities in terms of, um, of, in terms of homelessness. And so in order to, to address you know, the housing crisis that we have been facing for years and years and years, we do have to build housing. But I think we have to be mindful of exactly how we're building that housing. I think communities need to be at the table. They need to be, you know, steering the ship. Uh, they need to be able to, you know, decide and determine what that housing is going to look like, um, you know, what the jobs are going to look like, who the jobs are actually going to benefit and be for. Um, and so I think as long as communities are leading the way, then, you know, we can continue to build more housing. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm realizing now I have one final question for you. I'm realizing now, as I do often at the end of these interviews, I'm not going to get to several things I really wanted to ask you about, but we'll catch up more <laughs> down the line. <laughs> that sounds um, good. Let me finish with um, what I'm sure is, is your favorite topic, the Bedford Union Armory. Um, let, let me ask you, in, ter- in terms of sort of you, you came into office, the project's been built. Um, there are certain, uh, you know, policies relating, though, to the armory and the, and the new recreation center and so forth there that will still be, you know, potentially reevaluated, could be renegotiated and so forth. Are you, how are you thinking about that outcome and any, anything you're thinking about in terms of any changes there, anything you'd like to see altered as the, you know, its existence moves forward? It's still relatively new, obviously. I'm not sure that any of the changes I would like to see are ones that, that can come to fruition, um, you know, considering everything has already been um, you know, uh, all the deals have, have been done, uh, we can certainly look into it. But, you know, I believe that any public land um, should remain in the public's hands. And, you know, any 
any development that is done, um, you know, with city property, state property, um, you know, federal property uh, should be, and it's going to be housing, should be 100% deeply affordable housing. Uh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, you know, subsidize, um, you know, private developers on public land and give away public land and public assets um, in, in that manner. And so, you know, the change I would like to see happen, and again, I, I don't know, um, I'd have to look into sort of the status of everything, but um, would be to, to, to ensure that the housing that's, that's built there is actually 100% affordable housing, that 100% of the units that are built um, are meant for uh, folks who, you know, with the greatest needs. Um, I think there, there have been issues um, around some of the pricing for some of the programs that, that we're seeing um, in the armory. And to be perfectly honest with you, I haven't um, done a, a deep dive into the current status of everything. I know a lot of the organizations that were uh, taking space in the armory have only just recently started to move in. Um, and so it's still, you know, relatively new. Um, but my office, you know, can and will absolutely look into ways that we can ensure that, you know, that that project um, is actually delivering uh, for the needs of the community in, in which that it's in. All right. Well, um, we will leave it there. We'll check in with you about that and other things down the line. And, and we'll be looking uh, soon, relatively soon in May for the hearing you'll be chairing as the uh, chair of the aging committee in the city council related to the, the upcoming budget. The executive budget hearings are going to kick off in May uh, after we see Mayor Adams's budget uh, expected to be released the day after we're talking here. We're speaking here on Monday, April 25th. So we'll get to that. I saw it the other day. You're excited about the uh, containerized trash pilot expansion that the mayor Very excited. And, and like I said, a bunch <laughs> of other things we all get to touch on here, both, both, um, both things like that, you know, quality of life issues and so forth in your, in your district and, and a bunch of other things, but we'll catch up down the line. City council member, Crystal Hudson is a Democrat representing district 35 in Brooklyn. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Take care. 